Welcome to the BGSM Podcast. I'm Daniel Friedman, and today I'm very excited to be speaking with Dr. Imran Sajid about how we can improve the value of musculoskeletal healthcare. Imran is a GP based in London who brings a fresh and analytical perspective to the world of sport and exercise medicine. He is a frontline clinician, a healthcare policymaker, an educator, and an academic researcher with a keen interest in behavioral economics. Imran, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Daniel. It's a privilege to be here. Well, I recently had the privilege of listening to you speak at the Preventing Overdiagnosis Conference in Sydney, which is a conference that you have spoken at a few times now. What is Preventing Overdiagnosis all about? It's a really big topic, and I think a lot of it kind of links back to the old question of what good looks like in healthcare. When we're trying to understand that, a lot of that is also deeply entwined with our own internal individual system of values. Particularly in in all healthcare markets, we tend to see growth year on year on. Uh, Markets are very good at becoming more productive, um, becoming more effective and more technically efficient. But unfortunately, markets, they don't always tell you exactly how much of something you should be getting and exactly what you need. Um, And you see that in every industry, whether it's the food industry, the consumer retail industry. um, And we certainly see in healthcare where we're seeing more and more activity happening. We're seeing indication creep of procedures and and treatments happening outside of what they were perhaps initially studied for. Um, And so we're really trying to understand, can we make sure that everything we're doing um, is is activity which confers benefits? So I think the the Scott and Duckett have a a definition of low-value care being something where it's interventions which confer little or no benefit or where the harm exceeds the benefit or perhaps where the benefit isn't really proportional to the, to the cost involved. Why now do we need to have these conversations? Clinicians can often gawk when you start talking about value and cost containment. Economics at the end of the day, it's about the use of, of scarce resources. And I think every clinician who's ever been on call has, has experienced that pressure of having to juggle the finite clinical resource available to them. I'm trying to decide which patients they should see first, which patients are going to be uh, most likely to benefit from their input. Um, so it's not just about cost, it's about the precious clinical resource that we have, whether that's um, nurses, doctors, physiotherapists, surgeons, clinical time, tests, treatments. These are all very precious resources. So a large element about this is really about making sure the right patients can access that limited resource that we have. Um, I mean, healthcare is it's what we call a rival market. So every single time that some healthcare is utilized, that means that health, there's some less healthcare available for someone else. Um, And we know that particularly when it comes to MSK, it's one of the highest burdens of disability. So there's a huge demand out there. But then moving beyond the resource allocation side of things, there's also MSK is a particular context where you see the double edged sword of medicine. So medicine has absolutely tremendous benefit that it can provide. But at the same time, there is a real risk of harm. And I think MSK is a particular area where we see a lot of overdiagnosis and overtreatment, which more recent research tells us that these treatments are perhaps not as effective as we previously thought, but also carry a much greater risk of harm that perhaps we didn't previously recognize. What does the current musculoskeletal, that is MSK system, look like? In general is that we have a system that's still quite wedded to the biomedical kind of structural model of disease. And we have clinical pathways and payment models wrapped around um, this structural model of care um, around disease entities, which we we increasingly are kind of recognizing some of these disease entities might not be as, as clear as we once thought. I mean, I think it's important to recognize all diseases are artificial constructs. They're things that doctors, academics, pathologists create, and they should try and 
meaningfully help patients understand their illness experience and they should help guide doctors in their treatment decisions. But they are very arbitrary and they're always shifting. Even something that you might think is quite clear cut, like I say a heart attack, um, the definition of attack can change based on biomarkers and different tests that become available. Um, and also the relationship between disease labels and actually a patient's experience can be very variable. Um, so we need to start um, becoming more aware of the fact that the way that we talk and think about lots of diseases in MSK care is perhaps not so accurate. And that kind of overlaps with the way that we use imaging in many environments when it comes to MSK care and, and perhaps a more harmful way. Um, again, quite fixed on this, this structural model. We, we know that the structure pain relationship is very complex. Over the last couple of decades, we're starting to get a better understanding of the, the kind of the neuro-emotional circuitry behind particularly um, symptoms of persistent pain and disability, but that hasn't quite filtered into clinical practice yet. Um, so we often have um, perhaps scientifically incorrect or even potentially harmful narratives being told to patients by clinicians. And then I think one of the big areas where there's a big spotlight on in, in recent years is is some of the interventions and therapies where we're spending a lot of money on in the musculoskeletal landscape, um, particularly on surgical procedures, where we've had lots of landmark studies in recent years, um, particularly some of the sham studies like Fidelity and Fimpact and Seesaw, um, kind of raising awareness, and particularly amongst policymakers, raising awareness of the fact that some of these surgical procedures might not be much more effective than placebo contextual effects, particularly for some of the indication creep that's happened. Um, and and so we're now starting to look at ways that we can try and reduce some of that, this perhaps unnecessary overtreatment. And increasingly, we also need to recognize that as much as we're looking a lot at surgical procedures, there's a whole array of healthcare utilization when it comes to MSK across the whole system. So GP land, um, physiotherapy, diagnostics, um, medicines management. And we really need to start scrutinizing everything in the same way to make sure that we are optimally using the precious resource that we have in a way that's helpful and trying to limit the, the uh, unintended harm that can sometimes happen to patients. Why do ineffective treatments, such as some of the surgical procedures that you were mentioning before, appear effective and why are we still using them if that's the case? Yeah, so it, it, it's a really, really, I think, important question. I think um, uh, it's, it's often an interesting thing that I, I ask doctors I'm training um, how do you know if you're any good at what you actually do? I think most clinicians, um, we all have different motivations for why we've gone into what we've gone into. But over time, you start developing different proxy measures of, of how you're able to tell if what you're doing is any good. And that might be whether your patients like you, you haven't been sued yet, how much money you make, uh, how many new techniques or, or, or training you've done. Um, so we all end up relying on these, these anecdotal observations to try and judge if we're doing a good job or not. And particularly when it comes to trying to understand if the treatments we're giving patients are effective, there's a lot of reasons why we can continue to champion practices where it's perhaps just a therapeutic illusion. And, and it's just, it's human nature that we have this naive realism where we sometimes have a worldview of just taking observations at face value. Often patients will improve after we've been involved in their care. Um, Scott Lillianfels has done a lot of work in this area. Um, there's lots of overlaps with the world of psychotherapy actually where there are lots of different types of practices um, and therapeutic approaches which are taken which aren't really supported by high quality evidence but they just keep um, perpetually being used and clinicians I, I genuinely believe a lot of the time clinicians really strongly feel that these treatments are effective and they work and their patients have tried all sorts of other treatments and nothing's worked for them and this has been really effective um, I think most of the time clinicians are genuinely 
trying to do what they can to try and help patients get better. There are different ways you can kind of, you know, split into three categories why we sometimes perceive an improvement that isn't technically due to your treatment. Um, sometimes patients don't actually improve, but they just have a perceived improvement that tends to be various kind of attentional biases or the use of different types of scales, the kind of the, the post-choice justification. It's kind of how you, you might buy something and then you end up justifying to yourself that it was a good thing that you had to spend money on that, that purchase. Sometimes patients improve, but they're not really improving due to the treatment you've given them. The commonest example of that is regression to the mean. We know that patients have an often fluctuating course in their natural history. We often see them when they're an outlying worse position and they just have regressed um, to a mean state without our intervention. Sometimes you also have um, treatment interference from different treatments that they're concurrently having. And then finally, you have patients who, who improve, but it's actually just due to contextual effects, so placebo effects or novelty effects from this new treatment that they're trying. For all those reasons, we will often um, see what we think is a clinical benefit in practice, and that just leads to belief reinforcement as a clinician. And then that just gives us a false feedback to continue doing something, which perhaps we should just pause for a second and reflect on. And sometimes it can make us put too much weight on our anecdotal observations above that of actual rigorous scientific studies. If we focus on the current musculoskeletal system in particular, what do you see is the difference between high, medium, and low care? And is it changing over time? We have different frameworks in terms of how we try and appraise evidence to try and actually understand what is effective, what isn't effective. There's a really good paper, I think it's I think it's a 2015 paper from uh, uh, Neil O'Connell and Laura Mosley where they, they kind of did a review of some of the challenges in, in, in interpreting the effectiveness of interventions, particularly in pain. And they kind of went through all the different methodolo methodological challenges when it actually comes to understanding clinical effectiveness. And I, I, it's a really good read for anyone who's trying to understand a little bit more about, as a clinician, how can we critically think about what we're doing and look at the literature um, in good detail to try and understand what works and doesn't work. Um, so that's the first barrier is trying to understand are treatments genuinely clinically effective. Um, there is a whole kind of elephant in the room there about the, the role of placebo, I think, when it comes to MSK care, because we know that placebo, um, the placebo effect is huge, particularly when it comes to um, symptoms such as pain. And I think we're only really in the infancy of understanding what the role is of placebo in, in, in healthcare both from an ethical and funding perspective. Um, then beyond clinical effectiveness, we have all sorts of different and often quite flawed methods of trying to understand cost effectiveness. Um, and then beyond cost effectiveness, then locally we always have to look at issues like affordability and local ethical or even political factors about um, decisions we have to make in terms of whether we think this care is appropriate um, and high value for our local system. When it comes to managing chronic pain and working through that shared decision-making plan with the patient at the coalface in the clinic, are there any methods that you think are beneficial to try and improve the value of care? One of the challenges that we have with chronic pain in particular is the fact that our ability really to, to, to easily alter the, the kind of the natural history of essential chronic conditions is often quite limited. And I think that can often become quite a difficult process for clinicians um, where we're trying to help people with their suffering. And sometimes, unfortunately, the easiest thing can be just to organize another scan, add another prescription, refer the patient somewhere else for another opinion. One of the models which we developed a few years ago 
um, as just kind of a conceptual framework just to try and help. It was primarily for GPs. Um, it was to try and just provide other considerations, and it was particularly to kind of play to some of the strengths of what GPs are good at. In practices like this with behavior change, we want to try and make the wrong things a little bit harder and, and the right things a bit easier for people to do. So this, the, the relief framework, it was really just an acronym of considerations. It's not something which you can do in a single clinical encounter, um, but it's just things to think about um, when you're with the patient, just to try, based on best evidence, where you can perhaps focus your time in a way that suggests, the evidence suggests is probably going to be most useful. Um, so if I just run through the acronym, so R was about ruling out red flags. E was about um, education expectations, really trying to understand um, what the patient's perspective is. L was less of the imaging. Um, I was about introducing uh, goals to patients. E was about exercise or movement. And then F, uh, it was phonetic, was about pharmacology. And, and the last consideration really, I think, for in my mind, for GPs is which kind of drugs might you might be able to use. So if I was to dive into a few specific de um, elements of that framework, which I think are really impactful, which I think we can sometimes overlook, when, especially when we're getting fixed to the kind of the, the biomedical model. So the first, the first E being around um, expectations and education, really listening to patients and really understanding how their particular pain or disability affects all areas of their life. Um, it's a really useful opportunity to also just identify typical kind of what's often called yellow flags, which might be quite useful um, to guide your next steps. Uh, one of the things that I found really interesting that one piece of work we were doing was looking at how GPs um, would evaluate acute back pain. And you'll find that in almost 100% of cases, GPs will always quite consistently ask the typical screening fit features about corda equina. Um, and I understand why. And it's just interesting because there's some interesting work that my, Martin Underwood's written about the fact that the typical GP in an entire practicing lifetime at best might see one case of true corda equina. Um, and yet, so often, whilst we always ask about that, so often, certainly in the notes at least, you never see any documented questioning about really important features which the evidence shows are going to be some of the most prognostic uh, indicators to you as a clinician, whether it comes to back pain or shoulder pain. There's even some lit literature when it comes to knee pain. Asking patients about, well, what are your ideas about this pain? Um, how are you emotionally coping with it? How is it affecting you? Um, how do you think things are going to turn out? thoughts about doing some movement and exercise. These are such, it's such an opportunity at this stage to get an idea of those expectations and, and also potentially to reframe any negative beliefs that the patient might have um, and to start providing some reassurance to the patient that there are things that they can do. Um, and beyond anything, it's, it's just a good opportunity to really start developing a therapeutic alliance with the patient because um, we know that that tends to be one of the most important indicators of, of outcome in terms of um, that relationship. And then moving on from that, one of the the big challenges which we often see is trying to encourage um, L less of the less of the iatrogenic imaging. Um, intuitively, um, it makes a lot of sense why both clinicians and patients can often think that uh, an X-ray, an ultrasound, or MRI will will tell that patient where their symptoms are coming from. Um, but there's quite significant literature now about the unintended consequences that can happen. We've done quite a lot of work where we've shown just how often. Just normal findings can end up being misinterpreted and then patients can develop all sorts of negative beliefs based on what's told them. Um, it can be quite frustrating at times because patients are being told told things by, by healthcare professionals, which number one are often scientifically incorrect. You know, when it comes to something that's abnormal on a test, 
often that really refers to something that's uh, it, relating to what normal usually means biostatistically average on a test. And we've got quite a bit of epidemiological evidence about what you would normally expect to see as a result of age or activity on x-rays, ultrasound, and MRIs. And I quite commonly see patients who have completely normal imaging for their age or activity levels being told that they have some worrying pathology on a scan, which has just outright harmful effects on patients. Um, so I always try and encourage people to use imaging judiciously. And, and when patients do have imaging, to try and avoid that nocebic language and try and use a positive dialogue, you know, rather than using words such as wear and tear to say that, you know, you're seeing signs of a repair process going on or that you're seeing normal age-related or activity-related findings on a scan. And I think that can be quite helpful. Um, it gets difficult, I think, when patients uh, are told that they've got a crumbling spine or that their hip is wearing away or they've got a tear in their shoulder. We know that this can have all sorts of negative effects. And I think we would do well um, across the landscape, all professionals, just being a bit more aware of, of the impact our language can have with patients. Imran, before we let you go, could you leave our listeners, the sport and exercise medicine community, with three take-home messages, three things that they can do to improve the level of care within the world of musculoskeletal medicine? So from a system perspective, making sure that the right patients are seen in the right setting of care and that each setting uses the available resources in the most clinically and cost-effective manner. And that means for many patients moving away from the hospital-centric model of care, appropriately task-shifting care to the community or primary care services, or even moving care entirely outside of the medical system for many with perhaps a more public health approach to empower patients with education, resources, and support to self-manage what are often long-term fluctuating conditions. And that takes me on to point two, which would be um, we're going to need a, a culture change in clinical practice where we move away from this purely anatomical structural model of, of musculoskeletal disease. Um, in many cases, structural causes and their interventions can be very important. Um, but in my perspective, that tends to be the minority. And for the majority of patients, and particularly uh, so for those with chronic pain, we should move away from obsessing over structural targets and invest more focus holistically on a person's overall lived experience and really work towards empowering people to develop their self-efficacy and their locus of control towards an adaptive, future-focused, goal-orientated state. And that includes avoiding over-medicalizing patients in ways which can have unintended consequences for their outcomes. And, and number three, I guess, finally, engendering more healthy skepticism amongst clinicians to scrutinize everything that we do rather than just relying on what we've historically been taught or our anecdotal observations from practice rather to try and maintain a sense of humility and openness to revise what we do based on robust evidence rather than just falling prey to our own cognitive phenomena. We do need to get better at abandoning those elements of our practice, which inevitably over time will get shown to be less effective than originally thought. Imran, if our listeners would like to continue this conversation or find out more about you and your work, where should they go? I guess Twitter's probably the most effective uh, platform. So just uh, twitter.com and my name, Imran Sajid. Uh, that's probably the easiest way where I tend to dip into the different conversations that are quite entertaining and, and informing in the MSK world. Thank you very much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this BJSM podcast with Dr. Imran Sajid. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with friends or leave us a review and connect through our social media channels. You can listen to a new clinically relevant BJSM podcast every Friday. And there is no better place to find them than on the BJSM app. As always, we hope you have a physically active day.